I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day, and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the live podcast practice where we venture beyond our cozy little echo chamber to explore the challenging ideas that divide us in our quest to become more open-minded. We all hope to be open-minded, are we? I don't know. My name's Conrad, and if you're a new friend of the show, welcome. Obviously, very welcome. Regular friends of the show, also welcome. Speaking of friends of the show, I had a good friend of the show send me a DM. I encourage everyone to send me a DM. Um, It's great to hear from you. And friend of the show, Vivette, described Ideas Digest like this, and I quote, it's not my words, Ideas Digest is kind of like a midwife helping people do the work of birthing compassion and curiosity. Now, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I know what it's like to give birth um, or even help somebody give birth or even be in the vicinity of birthing. But I think it's an interesting description because it does sound like it's not easy, but it also sounds like it, the process might be worth it. So if you're up for that kind of journey. If you're up for birth, for, for the birthing pains of growing compassion and curiosity, then let's get into it. Let's start with the clickbait, abuse, lies, and pastors. This is an Ideas Digest first. Ideas Digest first. Thanks for people joining us live on Instagram. I have simultaneously two guests at the same time. Returning great friend of the show, Brad Jerzak, and new friend of the show, William Paul Young. Gentlemen, Thank you so much for joining us here live on Instagram and on Ideas Digest, the podcast. Pleasure. Uh, honored to be with you. Good day. <laughs> Thank you for speaking my uh, native language. I, I also say good day to you, Paul. Now, usually, and maybe this is more for Paul than Brad. Brad's a bit of a veteran on here. I usually have guests introduce themselves, like if we were to just meet in a, in a random scenario. Now... I think in this scenario where we've met, it's it's more like I've somehow invited myself to Brad's house for lunch and Paul's rocked up. And so it, the onus is now on Brad to actually introduce Paul t- to, to me. He's like, Brad goes, oh, Conrad, he's my Australian friend, Paul. So Brad, could you please introduce uh, your um, my new friend and your old friend? Absolutely. Uh, so... Uh, Paul Young, more famously called William Paul Young, is the most down-to-earth famous person you'll ever meet. And to fall into his arms for a Paul Young hug is is uh, an amazing experience. Of uh, It's cathartic. It's, you, re- you receive the love of God through this man. And so I'm so, I feel so lucky. I use that word on purpose. I feel so lucky that I get to be friends with this guy. Um so, like, it's quite remarkable. We're talking about, like, all books together, translations and all that. You know, he's probably sold more than 30 million now. Um, and you would not know it to sit down to lunch with him. So down to earth. What is, I don't even know what a salt of the earth person means. Whatever that is. I think it means. <laughs> actually, Jesus came up with that. You're the salt of the earth. A salt of the earth person is a person who lives the Beatitudes. And um, if ever I'd seen someone do that, who helps me stay 
in the grace of the day when I'm future tripping and going crazy, my dear friend, Paul. So I, uh, I love you too, Bradley. Thank you. Yeah. Salt, salt has, has, has both a curative and a preservative property, right? I don't know if you can get a better introduction than that. That that's a phenomenal. In Brad, I think um, Paul, you, Paul, you need to take Brad with you everywhere and just and just say, "Hey, Brad." I, just I'm effusive, <laughs> but I don't exaggerate. I mean, that's for real. So, and yeah. and Paul, if you were to return the favor, let's say uh, it was the opposite scenario, how would you introduce Brad to friends and friends of the show? I would say I want to introduce to you a fellow Canadian. And uh, a man who I completely and implicitly trust, which coming from my history is inc incredibly significant. Um, from, from the time we first connected, we were on the same page. And, uh, you know, if, if I could take Bradley everywhere with me, I would. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't. he is oh he he has not only in his writing but in his love for people I have learned so much from Bradley about how to reframe my words so that people even though we're in some contentious situation that people even though they won't admit it if they would they would say they were loved well in, in language and presence. Well, my wife is tuned in live and she is, she is loving. She says, yay, men sharing their deep feelings and connections. I feel honored to be in the middle of this bromance sandwich. And I've, I've gleaned a bit of information about you. Uh, Brad obviously is, is no, uh, he's a veteran of this next process. I don't want to rain on the bromance parade, but, We've just met Paul, Brad, you know, I'm going to lump you into this one as well. I might have some judgments and some assumptions. Oh, um, please. I've, I've heard things about you, Paul, and, and Brad, I'm remembering things about you. I, I've judged you and I must confess them to you. And I would really be honored if you would correct me where my judgments have led me astray. Could you, could you both do that for me? Oh, guaranteed. <laughs> but but you will know you're loved well yes and i will probably say it's worse than you think okay okay well let, let's let's get started with the with it then now i've never judged two people at the same time but what i've discovered happens as i'm trying to think what, what might people assume about you to 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 have corrected the categories get narrower as you lump people together, which is maybe, maybe that's the lesson and the object lesson of this activity here. So I've, I've tried to lump you together. Some, you know, maybe they shouldn't fit both of you quite perfectly, but here we go. Um, now I know for sure Brad's at a university and he's probably gotten this one before, but Paul, you're sitting next to Brad. I'm going to lump you together. You, you're both these progressive university political correctness type of people. A uh, wrong, a uh, wrong, um, wrong and wrong. No, so hard no on 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 Paul there, Brad. Uh, yep. You confirm or deny? Uh, I can confirm that you're completely wrong about Paul, <laughs> and and you about Bradley. Yeah, I I think that that you covered that last time, and and I would say you're still wrong. 
Okay, still, still wrong. wrong. Okay, yeah. these judgments don't go away, do they? Okay, here's here's the next one where I think you both got to fit in. You've got. To, I've been. To, I've done some googling. You're both a couple of woke heretics. All about wokeness. No. No. Um, no. No. Sorry. Even you know, some people may consider me a heretic. This is the first time anybody considered me woke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, because the generalization there is about something to do with the left end of some ideological spectrum, and correct. And we've been fairly vocal, harsh critics of the spectrum itself. Correct. And at this key is, this points, is why you're in trouble. The, yeah, the, the at key points we don't fit the script, and that makes some people more mad than those who've judged us. So. If you if you finally get to a human being, you're going to be closer. I'm just warning you because yeah. <laughs> because exactly like Brad is saying, you know, you try to identify someone in, inside of a spectrum that is the basis of a judgment, and it and it is it is implicitly full of both expectation and uh, punishment. Right? Ooh. It's it's punitive. I've, I've got a couple more punitive expectations, punishments to lay on you guys. Awesome. I, I, I like how you framed that, Paul. That's a really good way of putting it. At the risk of repeating myself, you, you're these universalists getting rid of all the hard stuff in religion, all the stuff people don't like. You're just choosing what you don't want. <laughs> well, first, neither of us are universalists. Ah, damn and, yeah, I know. And where we land is firmly indebted to the fiery fury of God and that no one gets away with anything and that God's love is such, similar to mine for my own children or grandchildren, is that I I don't want second best for them. I want them to be entirely human and entirely alive at whatever the cost. And I think I share that with the heart of God. So God never punishes us for, for behavior, but that fire is intended to be against anything that prevents us from being fully human and fully alive. And it is a fire and it is furious. And it's love. It is, it, and it's love. It is absolutely love. Yeah. That, that is the perfect segue, but one judgment too soon. I have one judgment left, and then we're going to come back to that exact segue that Paul's just brought in there, because that's kind of what I guess we're talking about. Um, last one, maybe harsh, maybe not, given our struggles with technology, who knows? Um, you, you, you're a couple of old, white, out-of-touch theologians. Oh, probably. Yeah, I, I was going to say that too. I was going to say, like, uh, depends on who's talking. I'm... I'm sure there is a lot of things we have no idea about. I don't even consider myself a theologian as such. And, um, and if you asked my grandchildren, they wouldn't say I was out of touch, you know, mm -hmm. and I hug, I hug really well. So, I have but, you know, yeah. So it's a sacrament. It's a sacrament, you know, because I come from a sexual abuse, um, victimized background. I don't have an identity as a victim, but my story, um, involves that and for for me to touch to have touch redeemed is 
is an incredible and unanticipated gift. Mm. And so, um, and I'm turning the term, you know, out of touch on its head a little, mm. but, um, and, and there is lots and Bradley and I both agree, you know, when it comes to the goodness of God, we barely scratch the surface. Yeah. I, I appreciate the, the depth that you've, and honesty that you've just shared there, because I think that it leads even better into what we're talking about there. The, the surface level clickbait that starts with abuse, lies, and pastors. I'm of course referring to the book that you guys wrote together, The Pastor. A, a crisis. As a starting point. That's my <laughs> reduced down to a level of a summary, abuse, lies, and a pastor. If you were to give it a bit more depth and rounding it out a bit, because you've already gone into some of the themes that are explored in this book. For friends of the show who haven't read the book, do you want to give us, I guess, a little bit about what this book's exploring and what, what and how it does that? Go, Bradley. Oh, okay. Um, so so uh, this is a novella, means a short novel that Paul and I have written together about a character who could have been from another vocation, but he happens to be a pastor because that's been our world and also because pastors are particularly um, targeted with this. But it, 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 so it just writes well to have it being this guy, especially since he's a composite carer, character of people we know and have both been abusers and abusees. And he, he's been living in the lie uh, of denial and coping with it through fundament fundamentalism. And his fundamentalism is really a, a confession for deeply repressed wounding that needs addressing. And uh, it requires him to descend into the hell of his own alienation. And we find him uh, in a psych ward. And he unravels there. And he's going to have to look at his look at his stuff and get beneath the fundamentalism to his role as an abuser, to his experience as an abusee. I mean, he goes all the way to the bottom. And in going to the very bottom, he finds Christ there offering love. I don't remember if we use the word Christ, but he experiences love as that fire. So it's truly, we believe in hell, but we believe it looks like this. The question is whether he will be able to follow the invitation of love and uh, into the kind of radical surrender that it would take to be healed. Um, what did I miss that's important there, Paul? And, and it's really established inside of a community of relationships, most of, he, of which he wants nothing to do with. And you find the voice of truth and confrontation and exposure emerging from an array of those who participate with us. So it's very much like the possibility of not dealing with your own stuff. Like someone has said, um, religious people believe in hell, but spiritual people have been there, right? And a, and a lot of our own personal journeys have been like that. Mine surely has. Likewise. And uh, yeah. And so the question is, how are we going to journey toward wholeness? And 
Bradley in a conversation that we had with um, the Spanish world who has translated the pastor um, as the sign. And, um, but, but they, in that conversation, he said, you know, you don't have to go to the bottom. Um, in, in the pastor, we see someone who absolutely hits the bottom and there's no, there's, there is the promise of redemption, but there is no certainty in it, even by the end of the book. And, and, but you don't have to go to the bottom. It's, it's like, um, an elevator at any point before it hits the bottom, you can push a number and get off and start dealing with your self and your losses and your trauma and all that, how your false identities uh, that have been created in order to self-protect and self-promote. So, um, uh, or you can get off the train before it slams into the end of the track. And, and, and it's true. There's, a, there's some of us that we do hit the bottom. I did. And, um, and the choice was either to find a way to change or to kill myself. That was it. That was the only choice that was in front of me because I had hurt so many people in ways that <clears throat> I tell, I've told people, and I mean this, I think if I hurt, had hurt one more person than I did, I would have, I would have gone the way of the last way to run away which is suicide. Suicide is, it's not hitting the bottom. Yeah. It's, it's the last way to run away. Yeah, in fact, it's it's running away before you hit the bottom. If the bottom is surrender, right? if the bottom is surrender, you can get off whatever floor you want, but if you if if, if, if you end your own life, you haven't hit the bottom yet. You, Correct. You, you took an exit ramp before you were healed, before you were, you know, and um, so it is something I want your listeners to, to think about. Um, I've, I've, I've experienced suicidal impulses throughout my life, and I had a psychologist really help me. He said, you don't need to repress those. You need to hear them, but you need to hear them correctly because your suicidal impulse is not saying kill yourself. Your suicidal impulse is saying you can't live this way anymore, and you need to do something radical to change it. And so then it can be heard as an impulse to finally make the hardest choices that you've been avoiding up to this point. And that probably saved my neck a few times. Me too. Me too. And I think that's absolutely true and absolutely beautiful. That's important. There's Somebody's going to be listening to this and that's going to be a critical piece. It's like, oh my gosh. Because a lot of us, we don't want, we don't want to look at the darkness. We want to simply avoid it. Because we don't think that God is in our darkness. We just think we're alone in it. I think you have even taken the book that we started talking about. Because I would, I would look at this book as I, I listen to the audiobook. I'm a slow reader. So audiobook oh, was fantastic to, to tune into with some great voice acting. And it, it, you, the themes you're talking about, that's what's written about in the human experience of the book. But then like these themes of hell, redemption, forgiveness, these abstract religious terms, surrender, as you put it, it's, you've taken those and you've, you've put them into a, into a story. So it's like, what does this mean? Well, let's follow the journey of this man and see what it looks like. What does hell look like? If it, and obviously, uh, spoiler alert, he's not in a pit of sulfur burning for eternity. Uh, it's, it's different explanation, but you both have, I guess, shown the level and depth at which 
you wrote it from as sharing your personal experience with these concepts. Uh, how would you define hell in this sense? As the, I'm hearing it as this, this painful transformation and, and this, the, the longer it goes, it continues to go as long as we don't surrender. How would you expand on those concepts? I, I'll jump in quickly. Um, I would say there's two aspects to hell. I would see this both in our story. I see it in the writings of George MacDonald. I see it in the parables of Jesus. So hell at one level is the experience of alienation. Hell on a second level is the journey out of it, and which you've just focused on in that second part. So here in, in our hearts, in our lives, there's a, this alienation that is very... Um, I, I think that's the best psychological world definition of hell, actually. And I think it's exactly what Jesus is talking about. We're not talking metaphorically. That's the literal thing. Mm. Um, and, and then the excruciating fire of transformation is kind of its own hell, but it's a cleansing hell, a purifying hell, a liberating hell, if if you don't jump ship. Would you see it Idi sort of like yeah. that? Very much. Ideology is too easy. The idea of eternal conscious torment is too easy. Uh, that just becomes a category in which you put people and you don't have to actually engage with it in a realistic way. The actual working this stuff out and the pain of it and the process and how hard it is. And I mean, that's talking about something that is far more real. There, there are a lot of people even in a physical sense on this planet who are living in a hellish existence um, that the idea of the concept doesn't even begin to touch. And so I, I agree. And we have to remember, too, that alienation is not abandonment. That is not what that's talking right. about. Our concept of hell, eternal conscious torment, is one of abandonment, aloneness. And we're not talking about that because neither Bradley or I actually believe that we're ever alone. That aloneness, that whole structure, that, that also, which has become an ideology, is fundamentally not true. You've never been abandoned uh, by the, the love of who is God. Never. And, but alienation is instead of me looking in the face of love, I turn my back on it. And love is always there. And what do I see? I see my own shadow. Out of that shadow, I create a mythology of my value, my worth, um, uh, everything around me. And so I interact with this darkness that has no legitimacy if you turn to face love. Right? But as long as I engage with it, has God left? No. Have I been abandoned? Not at all. Am I alienated from that love and from my own wholeness? Absolutely. And God, without leaving and with great respect, because God has such a high view of humanity, he will never make our choice to say yes and submits to our constant ongoing decision to say no or our turning away, but engages with it in terms of presence. And the presence of love becomes a violation of our belief in the illusion of aloneness. Do you think that's... Oh, tweet that. Oh. <laughs> what did you say? Yeah, repeat that know. one. <laughs> Good thing we recorded. I don't know. I'm, yeah. You know, like we get into these things, Bradley, and we learn a lot, right? 
Yeah. So I've, so I've never seen in the delusion, before. right? With the delusion of, of, of separation from God, for example. That we were taught that as you know, evangelical kids, your sin separates you from God. No, it doesn't. God, God is always with you, for you, and in pursuit of you. But my belief in that separation is this is a delusion, and the delusion gives me a real experience of alienation. But what am I experiencing? My own narrative <laughs> that is uh, torment. Correct. Is that, and it gets re- it gets reinforced. Yeah, and it gets reinforced by the darkness around us, right? So we begin to create an identity for ourselves based on our belief in aloneness. Because if you think about it, when you enter into imaginations that don't exist, that what I term future tripping, things that that drive you away from presence and into aloneness, you are so susceptible to anxiety and worry and all these things about things that don't exist, but they seem very real to us, hmm. you know? And, uh, and we get reinforced by trauma, by experience, by our history, by social media, by, you know, the opinions of others. All of these things reinforce that we're just a piece of crap and we're alone. We don't matter. We can't be seen. So we even have evidence we can present for our delusion. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But that's what we do with, you know, all internal conspiracy theories. Yeah. Yeah. That's a... <laughs> You, this is, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm swimming in the deep end already. It's <laughs> just sitting between you guys. Like when I'm hearing this, I'm hearing words like making, and I think that's exactly what I'm hearing you talk about. Two authors really grapple with the reality of these religious terms called love, called surrender, called hell, and, and, and go, what is that on a human level? And they're really hard to communicate. And that's why I'm probably in the right company a few creative authors being able to like your life's work is communicating these things. So as, as I hear you in your words now and in your book, make these metaphorical concepts real when you convey them from a personal experience. As, as story, right? It's, they're told they're, they're best understood in, in, in a narrative, in a story. And you need, and you need to know that the characters in the story most of those are real people that we know and that we got permission to use their uh, uh, their emails, their messages, their conversations. And, and so we're not, we really want to explore what it means to be human and the tragedy that we experience in terms of our humanity and what's beneath that, you know, because a lot of us get stuck in just looking at our tragedy or our drama or our losses and we forget what's underneath that. And I can guarantee you that every person listening to you wants to be a truth teller, even if they have a real struggle, because lies aren't, aren't fundamentally an attempt, an attempt to deceive someone because you have an identity as a liar. Lying is fundamentally trying to find a way to stay safer, right? We shade the truth because we can't deal with the... Um, the judgment, the, the disappointment, if we were a truth teller. But underneath all of that is a truth teller trying to find a way out and trying to find a way to the surface. Everybody wants to be authentic. Down beneath their crap. I have never met somebody who didn't have a longing to be good and kind and uh, present and whole and those are the things which are beneath and undergird all of our delusions. So our delusions sit on the reality of who we are created in the image and likeness of love, of God. 
of divine love. And, and we're down underneath that alone and um, alienated and thinking that uh, the, the layer above the, the deep longings, we think that's who we are. And so we are a liar. We are an adulterer. We are um, that, that we're just a piece of crap. And unfortunately, religion comes along and reinforces that. They say you're totally depraved. You have a sin nature. All of that language is language that recognizes that layer of crap as the real person. And it's just like, oh, no, but we teach that Jesus comes and, and loves you in spite of that. No, Jesus knows the truth of who you are and wants you to be free of that layer that is absolutely not true. Every human being matters. Every human being is indwelt by the presence of divine love. You know, but, but their inability to transcend this layer of garbage is because they have turned away from not only the love represented in, in the, the relationship with God, but also in with other human beings who are also indwelt by the character and nature of God. The, the way I hear you talk about what some might hear as your generic religious theological concepts, the things you hear maybe every week when you go to church, I'm hearing it spoken maybe for the first time ever, honestly, he hearing it spoken in a way that pulls everybody into those concepts and into those struggles saying you've experienced all of these theoretical theological ideas that are spoken about as an oh yeah god loves you yes like okay i understand that oh yes like you know he you know we're all not great but god will help you out of that but you're really grappling with the only way we can encounter those things is on the personal level of on the story level and the thing i'm hearing the difference in this conversation, I think, from the start with how normal theological concepts are just spoken about, you're, you're speaking from the level, from this level of story and experience. And I think I'm hearing a challenge on the fundamental assumptions on what reality is. Uh, I'm, I'm hearing you talk about society being a myth and these, these future plans, these stresses, these anxieties they don't exist and it's it's i'd love to hear you unpack what is reality because i'm hearing you essentially say that reality is our story and and when you to use your book as an example you wouldn't say that book is not true even though that actual character doesn't exist but in that moment you're exposing my propensity to say what do you mean he it's not true that pastor isn't real but you're calling to a level saying that pastor and the way it's spoken about, this is the only way in which these concepts are real. And it's so real that, that there are, because it's an amalgamation of people, you are in, you are in that pastor and you're in that pastor. And it's actually more real than a real story in some sense. So can you talk to me about reality? Like, because you've, you've painted a new reality, so now we're talking about these religious concepts, but in a more real, tangible way, because we've gone, the material world we operate within, things that are literally true aren't the only true things, and in fact, I'm talking about a level that is more true, that isn't literally true. Can you unpack some of those things I'm grappling with at the moment? We, we both 
absolutely believe what you just said. It, it is absolutely. It, it, um, we believe that that sometimes that storytelling can be a a much better conveyor of truth than some kind of mm. nonfiction set of propositions. Um, I, I want to add this to that. Then is it one of the things that makes the story true. Paul's already referred to. These are real. These are real stories. Like. Actual stories wouldn't have to be. They could be archetypal, like in the shack. But in in this particular case, you know, we've got we've got we found a way to allow people to tell their story who could never come on a podcast and say what happened to them. Yeah. But second, those stories are only they're not real if divine love is absent from them. So here's what happens: even in the story of our lives of our lives if we honestly believe that we're alone we're not living in the truth and so what this what this particular novella does is it is it says um this is this is true because the story includes the one who never leaves you and and um just as as an and so it means it's also that there is something metaphysical going on that we we believe to be part of reality so one example and this, I think, came. We have a, a scene in there that is straight out of an email we received, and it where um, one of the characters stands on a gurney, puts a cable around their neck, is about to hang themselves, and the spirit of Christ appears before them, ready to receive them, whether they stand forward or stand back, and then speaks to them and says, "Look in my eyes," and as they looked in their eyes, sobbing came, weeping came, and pain began to leave their heart out of their eyes into the eyes of Christ. I mean, that that sounds like fantasy stuff, but I'm like, no, that's that's reality with a capital R, and the person lived to write the email about it, right? So so um, both there's there's actual storytelling going on, but there's with that, if if the story includes the presence of divine love, it's true. If it doesn't, it's not. And, and that, in, yeah, go ahead. sorry, in that story, the person lived either way, yeah. but, but because they chose not to step forward, we got to hear that story now. And we, Bradley and I have talked a lot about the difference between nonfiction and fiction. <clears throat> a lot of people read the shack and thought that it was like actual and, and they were a little upset, like, we thought this was a, a real story. And I said, well, it is a real story. Um, in, well, no, it's not real. It's actually true. Mm. And the thing about fiction and parables, somebody pointed out that Jesus surely believed that. And it's absolutely right. But the beauty of fiction is it's an invitation for other people to enter a space where they can hear for themselves. The thing about nonfiction, it actually reduces space. Right? I'm trying to convince you of the space that I hold. But fiction... If it's not propaganda, because as soon as you put an agenda into fiction, like I want you to convert or I want you to change or whatever, as soon as you do that, you have you no longer have art, you have propaganda. But good fiction is like building a house. This is a C.S. Lewis metaphor, actually. Building a house where the inside is bigger than the outside. And people are given the respect mm. to make a choice for themselves. Right to hear for themselves. People have heard things in the shack that I never wrote. It's why the shack is not a story. It's twenty-five million stories. 
right? <laughs> As the reader yeah. inhabits the story, and now it's like you're you're telling on me. You're telling about mm -hmm. me. You're te so yeah. Oh, let's let's come at it a little bit different. That might help too. What can exist in and of itself, and what needs something in order to exist? So, can truth exist in and of itself? We're talking about the nature of reality, which for Bradley and I always ends up with the nature and character of God, right? So can truth exist without a lie? Absolutely. Can a lie exist without a truth? Absolutely not. Every lie depends on the pre-existence of a truth, right? Light, light can exist without darkness, but darkness can't exist without presence of light. Goodness can exist without evil, but evil is always a denial or a corruption of the reality of goodness. And so what is the nature of truth or what is the nature of reality in that sense? It's all those things that can exist within themselves that exists apart from their not opposite, but their uh, illusion, illusory, what people would would enter into as illusion. This is really important. So, you know, is there within the human being that which exists in and of itself? And we would say, yes, it's the image and likeness of God. That's the true nature that's at the core of what it means to be human. And so that's, and I think you see that all the time in how Jesus relates to individual human beings with great respect, with great conf confrontation sometimes, because he's not opposed to that person as such. He's opposed to that which keeps that person imprisoned. Mm. And, and it's like, all right. So the fundamental things of the universe all have their existence independent of the delusion. And, uh, and you can go through all of them. And it's just like, wow, it's amazing. You're, des you're describing a reality that seems in some ways to be very different to the material reality that our, may, our society operates on. If it's measurable, if it's provable, if, if, if it's tangible, then it's real. If it actually happened, then it's real. And, but you're describing a reality that almost that exists, but we can only ever tap into this existence through the human experience ourselves. It's, it's, we are only ever the lens through which we see. So all these very real experiences and concepts you're talking about can almost only be understood if we place ourselves into, I suppose, these situations and trust our, trust our own experience of love of hell of surrender and and fo and we almost have to participate i suppose i can't sit back and listen to you saying oh interesting oh yeah entered hell that sounds really tough i have to come to you and say okay here's actually what happened to me and you say yeah that would be that's exactly kind of what i'm feeling or mine was like this and so i have to i can't sit back i have to participate to really understand what you're talking about is that i feel like is that yeah adding one, one of the fun one of the fundamental truths of who you are is that you're built to be a a relational person, hmm. right? And that's why for us, you know, the Trinity matters because it means that there's actual relationship 
within the very nature of God. That's really significant for us. If God, if God never had an other to love as a distinct person, then love doesn't exist. It can't on, a, on the most fundamental level. We would agree that, you know, this, this table and the physical reality is real. It's real, but it's not true, right? There's a whole different understanding of that which is true. And true has to do with relationship and love and kindness and goodness. And um, so we are talking a, a different language. There's value to matter. It does matter, right? But we're talking about, part and you said the, the best word, which is participation. Because you're, you're not going, you're not going to, to leave the material world in order to access something that is independent of it. It's going to be inclusive of it. But, this is where the materialists were so reductionistic. Yeah. You know, um, so scientific materialism, basic or enlightenment, rationalism, whatever, it wanted to exclude the reality of anything you can't test in a lab or prove in a court. As if that's only talking about God or spirit or something. But when you push into it, you're like, no, you're even denying the human experience of what is love, what is grief. What yeah. is death? What is it? What is consciousness? All of these things are the human experience. And, and frankly, the, the lab and the court are not up to it. You know, it's, it's like, well, even, you know, that tree, it's really just a bunch of atoms. No, it's a tree. And a tree is, a, we have real experiences of real things that, that require us to think. But when, what Paul's saying there then too, is the heart of the matter, right? The, that, uh, relationality you could even say that god is god is infinite relationality and we participate in that as human beings so this this idea of relationality as i as i as i understand it it's all it's almost as if the human as as i saying you have to participate into it it also, the participation is that relational. And so if I was to use the example, if a man was on an island, born on an island, knew nobody, never spoke to anybody, couldn't interact with anybody, it almost sounds like you're saying without that man having a capacity to relate with somebody else, there almost would be less of a man and that man the almost Chernobyl, wouldn't exist. The Chernobyl, yeah, the Chernobyl babies in Romania put in cribs, not touched, not held, not spoken to, not complete like exactly do I, do I do i hear a baby right now yeah <laughs> hear... oh, felix is felix is crying out sweet i mean that's like timing is the sandbox of the holy spirit you know <laughs> they don't cry that's the alarming thing about about the, the babies and the, the chernobyl babies in the cribs who've been abandoned they don't cry and it's so alarming that it, it feels like demonic but it's not. It's just that the human development was so arrested by the lack of relationality. So here's what's challenging about what you explore and what you're calling people into. Your book explores some heavy themes around sexual abuse, sexual trauma, power abuse, um, and then the, the internal journey of the hell that this 
man goes through in some level of reconciling his journey, as you say, towards redemption in, in, in on, on some way. But that's what is deeply challenging because you're asking people the to enter into the story personally, as you both have really illustrated there. But you're saying enter into the story of the most vilified irredeemable person in society right now like there's too many examples to actually count of pastors sexually abusing um children women boys like it the list kind of goes on and in your book you're saying here are these themes and we believe in them so much that these themes are for everybody here is the most irredeemable and what's even a more challenging thing. Here's the someone who's so irredeemable. In a way, this is me. In a way, this is you. This is this is the truth of you and I. Talk to me about that journey of the redemption of the most irredeemable person or figure in society, and how we are in that. Yeah, that's a that's a brilliant insight on your part because. Those were two of the biggest questions we had. Is there a human being who is irredeemable? Is there a human being who is unforgivable? Mm. And what what we're suggesting is absolutely not. And what we're you know what we're also saying is that the hellish process is hope. It is not punishment. Mm. You know, but you're such an incredible creation that to unwind the losses and the damage is going to take a participatory involvement on your part. God will not heal you apart from your participation, but he will not abandon you ever. And so the presence of God feels like punishment. The presence of truth feels like a punishment. Exposure feels like punishment, but they're all where hope lives. And, and apart from those things, they're, there is hopelessness on a part on the part of the person who refuses to participate. But we don't see that the event of death is an inhibitor to this journey toward wholeness at all. And, um, and so you're either, you're either going to begin to work on this and participate now, or you're going to deal with it because nobody gets away with anything. I want to say too, that the book is a, is a deliberate defense of redemption a pathway to redemption. And here's what I've been discovering that, you know, uh, Dan White Jr. has been doing a survey of churches that he goes to conservative and progressive. And when you really, when push comes to shove in the, in, in these contexts where he's calling for love, forgiveness and blessing of our enemies, radical forgiveness in the face of real evil. He's discovering that 74% of the conservatives think that redemption of that nature from Jesus' own lips is, is um, compromise with sin. That's three quarters of conservative church members reject a pathway to redemption for the most sin because it's compromising with sin. But then he goes to the progressive churches. And over 72% of them say it's complicity with injustice. So, so now we've got this pastor. We know several of them, you know, where they were hearing from the right and from the left, from 
And I don't mean just the ideologies. I'm talking within the church that a pathway to redemption must be cut off. And so in a sense, this is, is an apologetic for, for redemption and to say we, we don't believe that. And maybe it will only be a quarter of Jesus followers and maybe far less uh, in our culture because we just love to punish people. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, if God won't, we will. Yeah. Or, we'll create, or we will create a God who does. We'll create a hell for them, yeah. Um, let me give you a little perspective about redemption that I think is incredibly helpful. I learned it from a good friend, Martin Schleski, who's one of the great violin makers in the world, you know, lives in Germany. And, um, and he, he taught me in his, in his book, Der Klang, which is a German book, The Sound. But he talked about how in the old days, the violin makers, the, the artists who would actually build the violins would go up into the mountains and and they would they would meet at these junctures where rivers would come together because the the lumberjacks would go way up into the mountains, cut the trees down, throw them in the river and let the river do the job getting them down the mountains. But at these points where rivers came together, these trees would come together and they would bang into each other. And the violin makers were looking for trees they called the singers because there were certain trees that molecular structure was such that when they hit, they, they, you, they let out a tone. And that's what they were looking for. And those singers were the ones the violin makers wanted because they would make the best quality of the bodies tone-wise. And each of the singers had their own tone. Nowadays, Martin goes up into the mountains with a tuning fork and he bangs on trees looking for the singers. Right. So so here's the thing. They have discovered that singers usually live inside a community of trees way up in the mountains and um, that the molecular structure of the singers changed because of the experience of that tree. In other words, if a tree near a singer went down, it changed the velocity of the wind that hit the trunk. And the sunlight, the amount of sunlight that hit that trunk and the tree would twist, it would turn against the wind or in response to the sun. And um, it would be an app, but it would affect every molecule in that tree. And, and the sound that that tree would make would be as a result of the experience of that tree. And what the violin maker would do is that he would cure these trees for a decade or two, and then he would pick a piece out of which he's going to make a violin. And he would begin to use a planer, you know, to, to, to shave the, the tree. And he says, here's the mistake. If you think that you can add to that piece of wood some absolutely perfect mathematical formula and overlay what a perfect violin is supposed to look like, and he said, you will destroy the sound of that tree. In other words... The, the violin maker, as they're planing, has to sense where the twists are and, and not cut across those twists. They're going, to, they're going to redeem the experience of that tree with, with working that tree towards being freed to be the sound that they are, right? So he said, this is not, and he uses this uh, metaphor in relationship to how God works with us. 
as he's the violin maker. And, and Martin says, this is not about the wood submitting to the violin maker. This is about the violin maker submitting to the wood and caring for every twist. So in my life, those, some of those twists involved sexual abuse. Some of it involved a very angry, abusive disciplinarian father, and some involved growing up in different cultures, whatever. All of those things, the point of coming to healing is not the eradication of those things, it's the redemption of them. So that all of those twists now get freed up and I get to be the sound that is unique to me. Not, in, not even in terms of, well, what were you always designed to be? No, it's taken in our experience and our interactions and our conversations and, and the horrible things that some of us experience and the beautiful things that we've experienced. And all of that goes into the sound of who you are as a human being. And the work of God is to free that, to redeem it, to, to re Kept not to justify abuse, never. Abuse is never justified, but it is redeemed and has now become part of the sound of who I am. So I'm free to talk about it. I'm free to be present to somebody who, is, who has experienced similar kinds of losses. And because I have a sound that resonates with them, they can hear in a way that maybe they couldn't from anybody else, Right. It's the uniqueness of the sound that I am and you are, each of you, and everybody that's listening. And that, that movement towards wholeness involves redeeming the losses and the suffering that we have experienced. Or caused. Or caused. Or caused. Same thing, or caused. Mm. You, when I hear you reframe these concepts of redemption, of grace, of, I suppose, in a way, punishment and what that would look like, you, it, it seems like there's a, there's a new pathway to grace forged in including the entire context of um, the human, where they've come from, the different traumas they've experienced, the impacts I, and I wonder if that if it's that at that point it gets really difficult for people because what seems to be happening is that trauma you you create the pathway by bringing us into the journey of this person we 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 start with the abuses that he has per, like perpetrated and the the natural judgments and assumptions what a monster evil our society knows what to do with him cancel him on Twitter get rid of their jobs, like what we know what to do. And then there is no redemption. There's no pathway, lock them up, just punitive. But in this you go, okay, well, here's where we start. And then we go back to what happened to him. And, and, and now this pathway to grace is exactly what you're pointing out there. Again, is you're saying, well, what are the twists and turns of his life? And then what does that pathway of redemption kind of look like? And I suppose it, to oversimplify, it goes, well, trauma creates trauma. Uh, if someone's, if someone's been hurt, this often results in more pain unless transformation kind of occurs. And that's the process you're talking about. And where I think you might be jutting up against the, perhaps the fundamentalism of our culture and people who might be struggling with these concepts is that, are you saying that people aren't innately evil? So the Christians listening will be saying, but humanity is evil and only through God we can get there. Or some other people might be going, well, if it's trauma that's created other people to do heinous acts, 
then where's their free will? They could have chosen not to. But now you're saying because of this happened, now that's why they did this. So are you now getting rid of free will? What Talk to me about those concepts that you potentially could be jutting up against or people listening might be going, oh, I'm just not, I'm just not there yet. Bradley, you want to take a crack before I do? Okay, I'll do that. I'll, I'll put the ball in the tee for you, maybe. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'll cry. So, um, so on the fundamentalist side, no, we do not believe people are innately evil or totally depraved. We believe that they're beloved children of God and that that's the truth of their being. Um, that they are like diamonds and life has tarnished those diamonds and that tarnish needs cleansing. Well, put it another way, in the great cosmic bus crash, some of us got seats that were pretty cushy. Others went through the front windshield and they were virtually born into a pile of broken, bloody glass. So, so we, we, we recognize that fundamentally people are precious children of God and that life is full of trauma. Now, with that trauma, um, we, would, we, we would not... We, we, I'm going to speak in terms of 12-step recovery because I've been participating in that for over 10 years uh, for my own stuff. And we would say, you may, you, there are maybe reasons and traumas you need to look at that are behind these addictions, behind your acting out behavior, behind the harm you've caused. You may be powerless over those impulses. They may be stronger than you and bigger than you but you're still responsible for them. How can I be responsible for them if they're empowerless over them? Because you can surrender your life and will to the care of a loving God who is able to set you free from them. So then we triangulate in this way. When I'm facing the things that caused uh, the traumas that I've experienced that cause that, that are reasons why I have harmed others, that, that doesn't give me a license to do it. It also doesn't mean I had to do it. What I had to do is reorient my life towards this loving, the one who loves me, who calls me out as a child. So, so on the one hand, we're like, yeah, this, there's a reasons why people do stuff and we should find out what those are. But on the other hand, it's like not everyone who gets abused becomes an abuser. Not everyone who has these impulses acts out on them. Why not? And what can we learn from those people? And what we're learning from those people is, is, that, um, is, is that identifying with, with that kind of, some kind of embodiment of love is, and participating in that can actually mean they won't ever do those things. And, and people react in different ways. Someone who's been ruled by a tyrant father might become a tyrant father, or he might become... Uh, a really poor absent absent father. It's like, well, how do we say it? It's complicated. So, now just fix all that up, Paul. <laughs> uh, so again, to reiterate, and this is really important, we do not believe at all that human beings are fundamentally evil, that they are totally depraved, that they have a sin nature, because that would have meant that the creation story itself would have been God implicitly at fault, because it was all good before there was alienation, right? So if that, if that creation was good to begin with and fundamentally good, not just good, but very good, 
then why did it all go sideways? You know, and and just as a, a quick aside, that if God had created a universe in which God controlled your ability to choose, took away your personal agency at any point, then love doesn't exist at every point. And so your ability to say no to God is highly respected by God, but it is something that will eventually kill you. And so God, who's opposed to that which harms you, will stay present to work this out. So, so we have this, um, I, I talk about this a lot, that wholeness, wholeness, the integration of a human being into wholeness is when the way of your being, the choices that you make, your personal agency is an actual expression of the truth of your being, which is your ontology, the truth of your being. Wholeness is when the way of your being matches the truth of your being. So the question is, what's the truth of your being? And if, like the world we grew up in, Bradley and I, if the truth of your being is that at the bottom of everything, you're totally depraved, you have a sin nature, then everything you're trying to produce from that corrupted core is fake. And a lot of us have felt like that. We're just taking another shot at performance and try to cover up and all this kind of stuff. But if it's that you're a child of God, that you're an expression of the very being of God, that you're made in the image of God, that means the truth of your being is not that you are a liar. The truth of your being is that you're a truth teller who believes they're a liar. And um, let me give you an illustration. My, by the time I was 12, we came back to Canada. I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea. I'm a missionary kid and then a preacher's kid. By the time I was 12 years old, I was owned by porn. I mean, it. I was a complete porn addict, and I hated it. I hated it with everything that was in me. It, um, but I, I, I couldn't do anything about it. And and I prayed, and I recommitted my life back to God, and I did, I, you know, without letting anybody know because I was so shame based. I couldn't let anybody know. So I was trying to restart my life performance-wise at any point, you know, like daily trying to, I mean, I don't know how many times I recommitted my life back to Jesus, but it was thousands, you know. And uh, so I haven't had an issue with porn for, well, since basically 1994, which is a a long time ago. But what changed? Did I finally get enough self-discipline? No. Self-discipline comes from the outside in. And if you believe you're a piece of crap, you have no self-control because you're a piece of garbage. But according to Jesus' words and the truth revealed in the New Testament is that, no, you by nature have self-control. I'll tell you the two things that broke my addiction. The inside realization, the revelation, if you would, that my inside eyes were open to the reality that I am by nature pure of heart. I'm by nature pure of heart, and I have self-control. That did something that no accountability group could do, no self-discipline could do, and, and I now relate to people without the sense of covered shame that says, no, you're really a piece of crap trying to do good so that you can escape hell, you know? This is not like that. The word sin in the New Testament, in the Greek, and people say it's missing the mark, but then they translate missing the mark as the mark of perfection, like perfect behavior. So 
So the way of your being is then defining the truth of your being, right? Rather than having a realization with your inside eyes that you are way more than the, than the way of your being. So the, the, what is missing the mark? What is the mark? Well, the word in the Greek itself is missing the mark of your ontology or the truth of who you are, which always leads you to a corrupted way of being. As a person thinks in their heart, the center of their existence, as they think about themselves, as they think the truth of their being, so becomes the way of their being. If you think you're a piece of shit, you will let people treat you like one and you will, you will begin to act like one, right? Mm -hmm. But if you begin to have this realization that you know who you're actually most like and who's an image you are created is Jesus, and, and Jesus doesn't abuse people. He doesn't kill anybody. He doesn't, he, he, it's not that he isn't confrontive, but he's confrontive because of love, not because he wants to punish people. And every human being is made in that image and likeness, whether they know it or not. Even me as a religious person, I was made in that image and likeness. I had no clue. Hmm. I thought I was just a piece of shit. Hmm. And and, you know, my hope was that Jesus would cover me with his robes of righteousness and sneak me into heaven and not dump me into hell. So you can see how all of these concepts and all this religion was not helpful, you know, and it actually perpetuated my shame and taught me how to bury it because to expose it would, would, be, to, would be the worst thing. And yet it turns out to be the way of salvation. The unexposed is the unhealed. We are as sick as the secrets we keep. You're walking with incredible nuance and depth and personal experience. This, what I see as the dividing line between the stereotype of the liberal and the stereotype of the conservative, that the idea of the autonomous individual seems to be the building block from foundational America. It's like, you can do whatever you want. You're the master of your ship. So if you're poor, should have worked harder, mate. If you're, you know, if you're violent, mate, make better decisions. But I hear you talking about these concepts with, with the both and approach of, of saying if when, when, when you say you're, you're still responsible, like Brad was saying, and you're still responsible for these things. It seems like the thing, and correct me where I might be off the mark here, it seems like the thing that stops that idea from sliding into, well, just make better decisions. If you're responsible, simple, mate. Make better decisions or go to prison, in the case of the pastor or something. But you're, you're, you're walking that line. It seems like the thing that stops someone from going there is what you're describing as the how we view ourselves and how we view whether we are a piece of shit or whether we are not seems to shift everything entirely in, in some way. Um, and and we're not just, we're not, yeah, we're not just making this up, mm. right? Because you can be ideologically in as, in as much trouble on one ditch as being a fundamentalist performance oriented person in the other ditch. So it's not both. And this is talking about a different way. And mm. so, where do we look to see the truth of who we are and how do we engage it? And one is we look at Jesus because we think Jesus is the, the person of God in our humanity. 
And we also believe that that presence of God is in every single human being, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, divine love, however you want to couch it. And that this is a real or a real in the best sense, encounter and engagement. I've got to hear the truth of who I am on the inside of me so that I am not at risk from everything on the outside dictating to me what the truth of who I am is. And go ahead, Bradley. What? I want to propose something <clears throat> like a, it's a true proposal. I, we need to test it. But I think about like, the, I'll call it what I think it is. The myth of Adam and Eve is about God giving people agency. And then in their, and it's a story about me. He gave me agency. In my misuse of agency and in others' misuse of me, that agency became dysfunctional. It's not gone, but in my turning away from, from love, every time I turn away from love, I'm misusing that agency and it, become, it can become increasingly dysfunctional. And so Christ comes along in, and he inhabits the human, the human condition and he shows us a way. Um, he shows us that, that, our, that autonomous agency that gives God the bird and says, I'm going to do what I want to do can become a strange kind of slavery. I become enslaved to my own autonomy, and it's killing us. Watch the news tonight. So Jesus comes along, and, and he shows us this counterintuitive truth that sets us free. And he says, reorient your heart toward the love of God, and you will hear the truth of your being. And that and, and that and that's what I meant by, not as a religious word, but a surrendering ourselves over to love instead of clenching our fists in self-will. So when I, when I reorient my, my heart towards this divine love and I begin to hear, I'm not a piece of shit. I'm a beloved son. I'm like, suddenly I'm free. <laughs> and I, and, and in fact, my agency is healed and restored. And so I call this, I call it a, a freed will, a freed will response. Because do I have free will? Well, I can make choices, but wow, my choices sure look dysfunctional and, and they look like that strange kind of slavery that um, uh, David Foster Wallace once talked about. And and so it's so weird that surrender leads to freedom, but like self-will leads to bondage. And the thing is, it's observable in real human lives. So again, with Paul, it's, oh, we don't have to make this up, just go down to the streets. <laughs> how do how does someone get there then? Because if, like you say, you're enslaved to a way of thinking or trauma has created these pathways in you that you're now hurting others because of abuse that you've suffered in the past or, or you believe negative ideas about yourself and who you are, ultimately, how... How do you get to that point where you, I suppose, encounter the idea that you are the Christ image that you're talking about? Um, or how do you actually end up internalizing that and believing that not only about yourself, but believing that when you look at other people? I mean, the whole thing there is in the story of the prodigal son. I'm going to do this my way. 
He goes off. He ends up in a pig pen. In the pig pen, it gets bad enough. So this is the whole bottoming. How, how bad do you want it to get? And then he has what in, in recovery culture they would call a moment of clarity. And that's a free, that's, that is a gift from God. That every everyone who ends up on skid row is given the gift or many times over. The, a, a moment of clarity, whether you're an addict, whether, you, whether, whether you're um, a high-functioning <laughs> bored person, I don't know, but God gives these gifts of clarity and then and suddenly and, and, and it's often the situation you're in that is the means of it. So you smell the manure in the pig pen and the rot of the corn cobs and the smell becomes a moment where you're like, why am I here? I need help. And then I, so, so there can be that inner impulse to turn back to, to God. I've heard it from people who were on living in, um, in, in solitary confinement in prisons, people who live in downtown Vancouver in, um, in the rubbish bins um, and uh, people who were working the streets in, in, sex, in the sex trade. And they have a moment of clarity. Like, and I've heard it in, 70th floors of bank towers and yep. boardrooms and, you know, on the stage, right? Yeah. So, so we get the moment of clarity. We make a, a move toward go toward home, toward love. We think we may give it a chance, even when we bring our self-loathing with us. And it's that encounter where the father's running down the street towards us with open arms and, 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 and the look the, that look, whatever that would mean or feel like, tells you who you are. I'm welcome. I have, there is a, I'm worth it. I belong. I, however that's communicated. And in our cases, it often was embodied through people. Um, this isn't just magic here, but a moment of clarity leading to a return where we experience embodied welcome and start to think differently about ourselves from the inside. So I, that, I think Jesus was onto it right from the beginning. Yeah, and in that story itself, it's the religious person who hadn't had that moment of clarity yet. It's the older brother. Yeah. Right. And so in my life, I've been both. You know, and um, mm. and it was the religious part that was hardest to move away from. That's and, why it's uh, so hard for the pastor in the novel, right? I mean, exactly. That's exactly right. And you know, at some point, you've got to. For me, it's, it's essential to not just the Christ image, but a, a God who is personal, person. That we're, we're not just talking to a force here. You know, um, that personhood is absolutely essential to, for love and relationship. And so I can actually have a conversation. And, and this goes back to something else. And this is in the teaching of Jesus, that, that God indwells in the human, not in like an apartment in the left toe, right? But, but in their imagination, in their creativity, in their logic and mindfulness and in their bodies, that God lives in us and, and not as some form of possession, but apart from which we can't exist on the one hand and fully an invitation to participation in relationship. Communion, a, right? 
and a, yeah, and a God who submits by nature. This is one of the things that my people, the religious fundamentalists, had a really difficult time with. It's like, no, God is sovereign. You know, yeah, I mean, God is out. Time is a created thing. Stephen Hawking showed that. But, but we're talking about a God and love submits by nature. So God will never make your decision for you, but will always continuously invite participation in the journey that you're on. And God doesn't put you on a timeline. You know, this is a, this, where does reality exist? It's in this everywhere, in this very present moment. That's where life really is. It's not about, yes, you're going to have to deal with things of the past, but you can't go into the past and change them, but you can change the snapshot you took, right? God can go with you in there. And so at some point, you've got to ask divine love, who do you say that I am? Right? Who do you say that I am? Because what am I hearing out here? I'm, I'm hearing, well, he's not very good at that. Or, you know, what does it take to crush me? Some opinion. And, and some stranger on social media has the power to put me into a spiral of self-loathing. How did that ever happen? Right? But the firstborn of Satan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is what, which is for those of you who hadn't heard, you know, is what I was, I was called a couple of weeks ago by a theologian. And, um, and, and it's because, you know, in the list of things that I believe that are leading millions astray included like Paul Young believes that God loves everyone. <laughs> and, and, and he believes that, that Jesus included everyone in terms of the death and resurrection and ascension. And I mean, and I'm, those are quoting scriptures, right? And, and I'm like, or he believes that everyone's a child of God. And I do. I do. So I'm guilty. And, and this, is, this is one of my people who is saying this. And it grieves me. Not because I take it personally, because I, I don't. But it grieves me of the obvious sense of relational damage that exists that these kinds of words can be offered. And, and I believe that this man is indwelt by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe this man's intent to love God is true. That intent is there. I believe that he is an eternal being that I will always have a relationship with. And his response, I was on a podcast and said those things that he, he heard, how he did, I don't know. But, but he made a response, you know, in a written format to not me, but other people that um, he, didn't, he didn't agree with what I was saying, that, you know, he was, I was not a brother. And, that he, and then he quoted an early church father as, as when he was called out and said, please recognize us. And he says, I... I recognize you as the firstborn of Satan. <laughs> and, and it's like, wow, that's a new one. I mean, that, I, I have fallen to such depths. But you know what? It's not true. And I know it's not true. You know why? Because divine love lives inside of me. And all I have to do is say, is that true? And I hear, absolutely not. You're my beloved child. You know, and, and I have... 14 grandchildren and one on the way, six kids, you know. And, and those children, they aren't trying to earn my love. They're just, they assume presence is their impact. 
And that's because they haven't been hurt. They haven't been damaged and they don't have survival skills yet. And we're going to have to work through some of that because we're in a world where, unfortunately, people hurt, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And, and, and it's, it's, it's the reality of our world. So I'm going to be with them. And, and if I pass physically from this existence, I know that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit will be with them and in them. And they're going to be surrounded by a community of, of those who poorly, you know, because I've done this poorly, but, I, but the movement of my life has been toward wholeness, even if it's been so incremental, you know. And, um, and they're surrounded by this love. And it's been part of what we have been allowed to perpetuate, the, the goodness and the kindness and the affection. Bradley has a new grandbaby who we heard from earlier. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and he knows, he knows of wherewith I speak, you know. You've preempted almost exactly where I finish up the podcast with exploring the opposition that you get and how you view them. And I feel like you've, you've answered that already, but, but I suppose to wrap up, if, if you both were door to door salesman, suit, tie, knocking on people's doors, and you're selling, you know, stocks in this idea that we've spoken about, you know, this idea that we are inherently made of love, right? Mm-hmm. If people were to say, no, thanks, no shares for me, I don't want to buy anything from you. What do you think that roadblock is? What do you think the roadblock is for, for that person who called you the spawn of Satan and it just can't get around what, what you might be saying? Is there a common idea that you hear that often stands in the way of following you down the pathway you've gone. For some, it's the concept of hell, you know, and a, and a punitive God. I think that's a big deal. And it's also why a lot of people have turned their back on, you know, the institutional uh, religious. And so like some people have written me and said, and they're my people and they've said, I am terrified to take the risk that God is this good and you're wrong. Hmm. Right. So there is, it's fear based and often shame based and, and fear and shame can both turn into self-righteous indignation, right? Because at least I've got to be better than somebody. And um, what was the term Bradley that um, is a sign of confession or a form of confession? Moral outrage. Moral outrage is a form of confession, hmm. you know? And so for me, when the, the longer I've lived and the more this work of love has grown in me, and I, again, I'm not perfect at this. I can still be triggered, but the more I'm aware that the person who is in front of me matters, needs to be seen, is well-loved, and is, is my companion into eternity, whether they see it or not. Because there's parts of this that I don't see in myself yet. And I need the companion of the community of people in my life, even my enemies. My enemies have a way of pushing my buttons that none of my friends would. You know, what a gift that is. A way of right? healing they, you. No. Yep, yeah. they, they, they bring to the surface my crap. And that's when it gets skimmed off and the gold remains, you know. Yeah, I would say in terms of that roadblock, it 
what, and this can also be a pathway, um, that the roadblock can be that they've associated faithfulness with a particular part of their belief system. So if we challenge that or offer an alternative to them, it immediately sounds like unfaithfulness and trying to draw others into unfaithfulness. And they genuinely care about those people. And where it has become a pathway for me is if I can acknowledge their intent of faithfulness and somehow demonstrate my commitment to faithfulness as well that that's actually we share that and 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 we may not even get to agreement um but if un, until they can let go of their attachments to like a narrow view of faithfulness that excludes everybody else it, it will be hard and then i think that's where Jesus has talked about, like, um, shake the dust off your feet. He's not saying be arrogant. He's just saying don't get attached to their opposition as if that's your identity now. Yeah. Um, let, let, we, let them be on their journey where they are on their journey. It's really okay. We've learned some beautiful things from friends Jamie and Donna Winship. And Jamie talks about all external violence comes from internal violence, Right. You have to have internal violence of one sort or another in order to become externally violent. All internal violence comes from a false sense of identity, like you don't know who you are. And and then all false identities come from fear and shame, primarily fear. And so what you have in outward violence is an expression of that fear through a false identity. And so in culture, you've got one false identity facing another false. And he says, here's the thing about false identity. They will always self-promote and self-protect. And so you get this conflict that exists interpersonally, even with yourself, because you're trying to self-promote or self-protect. And there's no authenticity. And there's no truth-telling. Right? And so you got these wars out here. Have you wondered why there are people you love who believe so deeply in a conspiracy theory that is just, you know, even friends who are flat earthers or whatever. And, and they can tell you all the reasons they cannot face the fact that they could be wrong. They can't even acknowledge that because to do so would be to dis start to dismantle the false identity that they've created around this. Right? So how does this change? Love is what changes it because where there's love, there's no fear. And fear as the basis for a false identity begins to disintegrate. It's, it's not coercion. It's not punishment. It's not any of those things that's going to change people. It's the presence of love. It's the burning bush that is attractive. And it's burn, some, somebody, their life is burning everything that is not living. All the dead wood is being burned out because everything that is living continues to live. And they become an attraction. So it's love that begins to destroy the impact of, of fear, because in love there is no fear, you know, to quote First John. And, and then that begins to dismantle these false identities, and, and that has to be something that happens on the inside. And those, the true identity that emerges, who are you? Well, if you're a piece of crap, you have no hope. I have no hope. But if it is an expression of the life of Jesus, then 
all of a sudden that begins to work its way outward and I don't end up in outward violence or violation. I end up as the way of my being becomes the expression of the truth of my being. I'm kind, I'm good. Any fruit of the spirit you can name, that's who I am. I'm patient by nature. A lot of people are asking God to give them patience as if it's a, a little vial or jar, you know, that God can give you a little bit of. No, it's the revelation that you are patient by nature. Nobody prays for patience in the New Testament, right? It's always, no, express the truth of who you are. You are patient, you are kind, you are good. And I don't care what kind of trauma you've experienced. Beneath that is goodness. That's why you have that longing. Beneath that is authenticity. That's why you have that longing. To beneath that, beneath the lies, are, is a truth teller. And that's why you have a longing to be a truth teller. You do. You just don't know how to get there. And um, so again, find out, ask God to reveal to you the truth of who you are. Tell me who I am. You know, and Jesus recognizes that. He's like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they don't. They really don't. And the people who are antagonistic in our lives, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they are. And they're finding scrambling ways to self-promote and self-protect. And that's a sure sign that you're dealing with a false identity. So, you know, don't go into combat with a false identity. See the truth of who they are and begin to love the truth of who they are. Call out the truth of who they are. Recognize the truth of who they are. Serve the truth of who they are inside of all the crap that they present. You know, and all their way. They'll, they'll come to you in the middle of the night when nobody else can see them because they're so afraid. Right. And, and that becomes a gift to us, we get to participate in filling up some of the sufferings of Christ. Thanks, thanks to Conrad for establishing an entire yeah. podcast dedicated to that. And I don't mean this episode. This is what you do, Conrad. You're always doing this every episode. I'm so proud of you. I am too. If that's what you're doing, I'm I'm absolutely honored to know you. Oh, thanks, thanks so much for. <laughs> such such kind words um i i do appreciate that you know you can yeah you can see that that attempt uh, that attempt brad um i think you you both have given the listeners of the show friends of the show a lot to sit with as i'm like unpacking the pictures you've painted but you've, you've given, you've, we've spoken about concepts that are very familiar concepts that people have heard their entire lives. But I, I think you've given a lot of depth to those con concepts and you've, create, you've spoken about the reality in which these concepts exist and then called people into, in order to take those seriously, to participate in what these concepts would look like. And I want to thank you both for being really personal and vulnerable in sharing and exploring these these concepts and ideas because I think it, it's a way in which I haven't personally engaged with these ideas much and maybe friends of the show might might see it the same way. Um, many atheist friends of the show might have painted a complete different picture of experience of religion, friend of the show, Alice, last week. Um, the picture's painted very differently. So I think you've really given a lot to... Uh, I, if people are sitting with it and made it through this far in the podcast, they'll, they'll definitely have a lot to think about. Is there anything you might want to add to sum up 
to, to finish off with? I, I just had this thought, you know, I've got good friends who are atheists and I always laugh and tell them, you know, atheism is like halfway to Jesus from religion. <laughs> so, <laughs> which I love. And, you know, we, we weren't actually trying to unveil concepts. We were trying to talk about our humanity, hmm. you know, and, um, and that's grounded in the very being, character, and nature of divine love, of the person of God. And um, so that's, that's it, Bradley. Yeah, and the, the God who bears my wounds. The ones yeah. I've experienced, the ones I've inflicted. Uh, that's and and M and M. Yeah, I mean that's. So when we, that's why, earlier Paul was so insistent on you know this isn't a force. The universe doesn't love you. <laughs> right. Check the weather, but there's a personal God who indwells you. That I was asked why, why do you believe Jesus is God? It's like same as Thomas. I looked in his hands and I saw my wounds there um that's something to meditate i think on mm. uh, a god a god less than that isn't greater than that <laughs> and uh just doesn't do the trick for me and that's why i i feel like so many of us have gone from one idea to another idea to another idea concepts and uh i believe in a living connection that looks like communion with someone inside me <laughs> so where can people learn about what you guys do and the work and the work you do? Where can they find you? Just Google our names. <laughs> you'll, find, know, you'll, you'll find every, you'll find both sides of it all. <laughs> what? What's your website? For, um... Oh, my website is wmpaulyoung.com and I go on it like twice a year just to see what's happening. And, uh, I'm like, I don't care about notoriety. I don't care about platform. I did this series called Restoring the Shack that a lot of people have gotten a lot out of. And in that series, which is beautifully done, um, it tells my story in many ways that I think have been very helpful. That's the so one you, to go to, Restoring the Shack. Yeah. Somewhere it's on like, the internet. It's like 20, 20 short episodes. And uh, it's on, I don't know, you can find it on YouTube or not. I'm not, actually, I'm not connected with it at all. Somebody else did it. So, And I'm at bradgersap.com and all the social media stuff. I, I blinked out for a second. Yes. Uh, and Brad, are, are you still taking enrollments for your um, School of Theology? Um, the the enrollment for this fall is, is closed, but people can start applying for January at... Uh, either the Institute for Religion, Peace and Justice.org, IRPJ.org, or SSU.ca. That's the MA program in theology and culture. Which works well for our Australian listeners who university would, you know, beginning of the year, January. Yes, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Let me plug Bradley's latest book. And it's the third of a trilogy. Mm -hmm. A more Christ-like uh, word is the new one. And it's after a more Christ-like God and a more Christ-like way comes the more Christ-like word. And I'm telling you, um, our friend Wes Yoder just sat the last couple of days and finished going through it. And he said it's absolutely remarkable and important because a lot of people who are coming from our world, fundamentalist Christianity, we sort of replace the Holy Spirit with the Holy Bible. And 
and we're stuck as a result. And Bradley goes into the whole, because he loves scripture as I do. And, and yet we, we struggle with the God that is presented in, you know, the Hebrew scriptures versus all of these kinds of things. And Bradley uh, begins to unfold scripture. He calls, he calls it um, understanding scripture, the Emmaus way. Is that right? Reading. Yeah. Reading, reading, reading scripture, the Emmaus way, which is, which is how Jesus did it to these two disciples on a road where they didn't even know who he was. And he, he went through all of scripture talking about why these things had to happen, but it's an entirely different paradigm, which is incredibly helpful for those who are, who want to defend the Bible. And, um, and so like Bradley says, I think it's in the book, right? I believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God. And when he was 18, he grew a beard. Right? Jesus. So anyway, that's a, a Thanks, plug Paul. that I want to make. You're welcome. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for taking so much time to sit down and chat. I feel very honored to be uh, the cheese in the bromance sandwich that I clearly see the love you share between one another. It's been a fantastic conversation. If you're listening to the show, you're still listening to the show, you've made it this far in. And if you disagreed with everything, if you're the guy that, that believes Paul to be the literal spawn of Satan and you're still listening to the show, then congratulations. You've made it so far listening to someone you completely disagree with. That's the purpose of the show. Send me a DM. Send me a DM if there's any questions you wish I had have asked. Definitely, there's a lot to go into. Definitely miss something. And so always, you can always reach out to us then. And if you made it to the end, I'll send you a little gold emoji. They're really rare. You can spend them anywhere. Um, you know, that's just to show my appreciation for participating in the practice of Ideas Digest. Thanks for tuning in and I'll catch you all in the next episode.